Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. My name is Hayden Potcotter and I'm the men's pastor here at GBC. And I'm excited, like Brian said, to land the plane on 2 Corinthians. It's kind of feeling symbolic. We're ending a book and it's the end of summer. And I don't know about for you, but this has been a big summer for me. The biggest even. Uh, this is the summer that I, lived, I uh, fulfilled a dream I've had of getting to take my three daughters to Disney World, which... If you know me, this is kind of my Super Bowl. This is kind of when I'm going to come most alive. This is maybe what I do best, maybe even what I was made for. So I studied and I researched and I listened to podcasts and I read and I participated in discussion forums and I did a dutiful amount of research to prepare for this trip and I put it all, I compiled it into a Google Sheet and I sort of, I had to name the project. I named the project the Peter Pan Project. And I did that as a nod to my closest friend. My closest friend is a guy named London McGill. Um, if you know London, he goes to your GBC. Um, you may not know me, you might not know London. What you can know is that on paper, there's nothing about us that's similar. There's nothing about us that should make us friends, but for the gospel. I mean, that's it. Um, anyway, London, um, when I'm, when I'm uh, he's my closest friend, and if I find myself grumpy, if I find myself complaining, uh, if I find myself selfish, if I'm doing those things, London will say, hey, it's time to grow up, Peter Pan. Like, that's his encouragement. It's time to grow up, Peter Pan. And I take that, and I'm like, you're right. It's, it's time to grow up, Peter Pan. But in an effort to never grow up, I created the Peter Pan Project. And I mean, this is hour by hour, 6 a.m. to 11 p.m., <laughs> broken down. <laughs> and I had where we were going to take bathroom breaks, Hey, we're going to have snack stops. <laughs> I mean, I, it was, it's, anyway, so we have, three, we have three daughters, five, two, and nine months. And so, so you know, I have this great plan, and it, to implement it, you know, you can track. It, it's probably a dumpster fire, and, you know, it, it's a wash, and it doesn't matter. Except you'd be wrong. It was nearly perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is my Mona Lisa. This is my Sistine Chapel. <laughs> the Peter Pan Project is my perfect game. Whatever sports analogy, I don't know. This is my deal. I, well done, good and faithful is what I have ringing in my ears. <laughs> I, I will never show it to anyone because it was that good. It's retired. It's done. It will never, it will never be touched. <laughs> and here's the thing. I, I, can't, I can't share it all with you. It was, it was success. My wife is mortified, I'm sure that I'm sharing all this, um, but I can tell you that it started with beginning with the very end in mind. And so one thing we decided together, blank spreadsheet, was what do we want our girls to leave with? What's the, what's the, what's the emotion we want them to have? What's the whimsy we want them to experience? What's the last thing? Let's begin at the very end of our last day, last night. And obviously, it was fireworks at Magic Kingdom obviously. And it was so fun. And I mean, we look back and we're like, that's what they talk about. That's what they think about. That was, that's what they're on their mind on the airplane. That's when, what's been on their mind the rest of summer. And my point that I'm getting to is we're, is we're closing 2 Corinthians. What do you think Paul wants them to leave with? What do you think is, is the, in the interim before his return, which he's telling, I'm coming back to you, what is it that he's going to want them to dwell on? He's written multiple letters but what is he going to want them to leave? Like, what does he want them to leave with and think about? What change would he want to see? Is it a charge, a challenge, a reminder, an encouragement? How is he going to end it before he comes back? 
Let's jump in. We're in 2 Corinthians 13. If you haven't turned there already, we're going to be, we're going to finish it out. So it's 5 through 14. But if you would, we're going to read first, first verses 5 through 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So candidly, when I was reading this and studying this, I was a little uneasy because it's, the, it's talking about passing and failing a test as pertains to our faith. It feels like a tough thing to talk about, it's a tough thing to wrestle with. And I don't think that's because it's an examination problem. I don't think it's that we're bad in examining. I, I think there's a few things that make it difficult. There's a few pitfalls, a few dangers. One of them is that we're good at examining. We're just not good at examining ourselves. We're really good at examining and testing others. Think about in any relationship with, with a spouse. I'm really good at calling out Jillian with something she did, but I'm not, not going to call out what I did. I'm really good at examining and testing. Same is true with maybe your supervisor. Man, think about the places we could go if he would just do this or that. Same can be true of even in your small group. Someone's like, hey, how was, how was your small group this year? Well, you know, I just didn't really like the way my leaders led, so it was just okay. Or flip that. You led a small group. How was your small group? Well, you know, just not everyone participated well. I wish I, they, they should have participated maybe more. That would have made it better. We're really good at examining and testing others. I think that's true. So I don't think it's just an examination problem. But Paul, in verses 5 and 6, he says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. In the Greek, when read this, when, we, when you would read this, the emphasis would be on yourselves, not on examine and test. So it would be read as yourselves examine, yourselves test. Paul's, Paul knows personally that they have a problem looking to others and not looking inward. He knows that because they've been questioning and calling him out about his authority, about his power. He's very clear about that. He's playing the reverse Uno card. He's saying, he's closing it with yourselves examine, yourselves test. So I don't think it's just an examination problem. It's directional. Quick to examine others, not ourselves. I think if we do examine ourselves, we're bad at examining the wrong things. We're asking, answering the wrong questions. We're looking at the wrong content. God probably does not care that I'm a mouseketeer in the discussion forums, which I am, <laughs> to be clear. But that's a thing that doesn't matter. I mean, I, I, I poured into that spreadsheet. I tested it. I, I proofed it. In the end, what did it tell me? That I am giving my time to worthless endeavors, maybe. That I'm a good administrator or I'm a good strategizer, strategizer I'm a good facilitator, maybe. Or I could even dangerously look at it and say, is this proof that I'm a, a good dad? Did I care well for my girls? Does this show them? Are they going to look at this and see, yes, they, he does love me? We'll examine the wrong things. Let me see if this is the truth for you. How often do you examine yourselves and you say, how am I doing professionally? And grab onto a metric there. You can look at promotion history, salary increases, bonuses, how many pats on the back you've gotten from your supervisor. Or you can say, how am I doing academically? You can look at your GPA, you can look at your medical board exams, you can look at, you know, grades on a test if you're in high school. You got metrics for that as well. You can even look at yourself and examine how am I doing interpersonally, relationally? How many friends do I have on a social media platform? 
How many likes did I get in my last post? Or how many dates did I go on with my spouse, my girlfriend or boyfriend? You can look at those things and check down the list of how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing. The problem is those aren't things of eternal significance. It's looking at the wrong things. Maybe you're examining yourself. You're looking at the wrong content. You're asking the wrong question. Paul's going to give us the question we need to be answering in our examination of ourselves. It's a question of utmost importance, of eternal significance. He says, examine whether you're in the faith. Then he gives a question. Do you not know, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? The question, is Jesus Christ in you? The question we all have to answer. Jesus said that. He said, I'm the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Meaning, it's important. Is Jesus Christ in you? Access to the Father. How do we do examining that question? Is Jesus Christ in us? And then, let's say we get to that point, we're not looking at others, we're, we're asking the right question, but are we doing it from the right vantage? Are we doing it from the foot of the cross? Let's say presumption and indifference is to not self-examine. The other could be self-absorption and obsession. That can look two different ways. They both lie on either side of the cross. One could be that you look at yourself and you say, grace is for everyone else, but it can't be for me. God really knows what, what, what is true about myself, the sin in my life. If he really knows what I've done, I examine myself and I say, there's no way that his grace would be sufficient for me. But it's self-absorbed and it's looking inward. Robs God of his ability, the sufficiency of his grace. The other side of that would be answering the dreaded question, how am I doing? Someone asks you, how are you doing? That's another way you can self-examine yourself. And you say, okay, um, I read my Bible. I attended church. I went to small group. I signed up for a small group. I went to small group. I gave my money. I did all these things. But that leaves you sort of in fear. It says, am I ever actually doing enough? It's a dangerous place to be. One of my favorite movies of all time, it's number five on my list, is Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen it, you should. The movie's about a group of soldiers led by Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, and they're trekking across France to find a soldier named Private Miller, I mean, um, Private Ryan. And on the quest, a lot of this band soldiers, they die in battle, including at the end, once the rescue mission is complete and Ryan is safe, Captain Miller himself, whose dying words to Ryan were this, earn this. After this feat of sacrifice, after he dem- they demonstrated this, this tenacious effort to find him, earn this. What a devastating weight to carry for Ryan the rest of his life. Seen by the fact they flash forward to the end when he's at the gravesite of Captain Miller and Ryan says to, the, to Captain Miller, to his cross, I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what you have done for me. How often can we examine ourselves spiritually from this disposition where we're just hoping to God, I've tried my best. I hope it was enough. I hope I've earned what you've done for me. How devastating would it be if Jesus' last words, his dying words on the cross were earned this? But they weren't. His dying words on the cross were it's finished. 
The work has been done. So out of that confidence, out of that assurance, we can examine ourselves. Inward, looking at ourselves on the right question, is Jesus Christ in me? With assurance, if you're a Christian, not in uncertainty, not in hopeful that you've done enough. And then when we can do that, we can look back at 2 Corinthians and see that he gave, he gave, Paul gave some really great metrics to look at, sort of evidences of our salvation. And they're just that. They're evidences. They're not things we should work for, to work towards. That would be the how am I doing? Am I doing enough? But just to see as an evidence of an assurance that we are. I've kind of looked at this when I was, when I was putting this together as um, they're like rock cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S. It's kind of hard to say. If you've been hiking or backpacking in Colorado, you might have been on a trail where you'd see a stack of rocks, like some salt stones stacked up. They're called cairns. And hikers, when they're going, when the path looks like it's kind of getting sort of dusty, maybe it's losing it, you can't, can't really see it as well, they'll start stacking these up so they're markers to remind you, I'm on the right trail. This is the trail, I'm on the right trail. They're not the trail itself, they're reminders and they're evidence and they're markers that you are on the right trail. And so I, I've kind of put these in, in three pools, three camps, or, or I'll say three cairns that Paul has given us in 2 Corinthians of evidence of our faith we can look at as we're examining ourselves to say like, am I in the faith? These are markers of it. It'll have theological implications, it'll have ethical implications, don't have social implications. Those are all implications, evidences of Christ in us. We see theological first that it should change the way we think and what we know about God. There, there are core things we need to believe. Paul said in chapter 4, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. He later says in chapter 11, he gives them a warning against someone else coming and proclaiming a different Jesus, a different gospel. Meaning, we have to be careful with what we think. We need to think the right things. We need to know the right truths. There are, there are fundamental things we have to believe. That Jesus is Lord. He's the Son of God. He was fully God, fully man. Of the sinfulness of humanity, but the sufficiency of Christ. Those aren't all of them. Those are just a few of them. But it will change the way we think. We will have different thoughts, and we will know different things as evidence of our faith. He also said there's going to be ethical implications that we're going to want to live differently. We're going to pursue different things. We're going to have different thoughts. Not that we're going to be perfect, but we're going to be different. But we're going to desire different things. Just last week, if you were here, Wes Carpenter finished chapter 12, and, and he talks about that. Paul is saying, I'm nervous. I'm going to find you doing these things, quarreling. You're going to be jealous, angry, hostile, slandering, gossiping. You're going to have conceit and disorder and sexual immorality. He's saying, I'm nervous I'm going to find you in those. And that's not what you're to pursue. Because to know God, you want to live like him. You'll have different thoughts, and it, it should change what we pursue. We should desire to pursue holiness, pursue purity. And so it should change the way we live. And then the last one, socially. It should change us socially. In chapter 2, he talks about how we should forgive and welcome sinners. And then chapters 8 and 9 talks about we should give generously. So it should, should change the way that we care for people, that we love people, both people outside the church as well as people inside the church. But it should have an implication that there's change there. All these things, we can look at them. And, and our hope is not to build these up and say, like, wow, I'm doing so great. The hope is that we can look at them, and as we're growing in them, that we look at them and be like, 
How can God be so good? God is so good to grow these things in us. Because for us, out of an assurance, we can grow in all of these. We can grow in the way we love God. We can grow in the way we love his commandments. And we can grow in the way we love his people. So how are we doing with those things? How are we doing growing in those areas? How are we doing it with assurance? Now, a danger, before we move on, I know we've on-ramped this for quite a while, but I think it's important, is to say that when we're engaging in self-examination and looking at our faith and asking that question, if you're doing it as frequently as daily, what you can end the day thinking is, I'm a failure. I did a really bad job. Am I really in Christ? Could I really be a Christian? Because I did not do well today. What does that tell me? And here's the danger in that. I feel like a growth in a, in a one-day, isolated day, it's like checking your pulse for five seconds and thinking that's going to be an accurate reading. We have to have a right vantage. We have to have a right perspective. We have to have people in our life also that are reminding us of that. Like, hey, yesterday may have been a hard day. You may have struggled with these things yesterday, but you were dead, and now you're alive. Look what's happened in you. Look how your life has been different in you because of what Christ has done. So a danger to avoid Every day, think at the end of the day, man, I'm such a failure. Hopefully, it, it pushes you more towards you're looking at those seasons of your life, those circumstances that are difficult, when the path is a little dusty and hard to find, and they exist as cairns stacking up, just reminding you, look what God's doing. Look how good he is. That's, where we should, that's how we should be examining our faith and answering that question, is Jesus Christ in us? So he, he kind of drops what kind of feels like a bomb of self-examination on them, but then he's going to follow it up with a Paul that's very pastoral, very caring. Look at the way. We're going to read verses 5 through 10. And this time, I want you, as we read 5 and 6 and move on from there, look at the way Paul speaks to them and look at the way he provides some care for them. I think it provides great instruction for us how we can do the same with other believers. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you failed to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So remember, Paul has been with the Corinthians in person. He has written letters to them. He spent a lot of time in them. He's invested time. And he's going to start this off immediately by affirming and encouraging. From Paul's vantage now, when we read that first verse, look at the way he asks the question. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ in you? It's a question that invokes a positive reply. He's not asking it to lead them towards skepticism. He's not saying, hey, you sure? Hey, is Jesus Christ really in you? He says, hey, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? I mean, he's played the reverse uno. I said that. He said, look inside yourself. But he's done it with a really soft and gentle approach. He's done this throughout the letter. Earlier, he's already called them in chapter one, the church of God. 
He said in chapter 7 that he has great pride in them. In chapter tw- or a few verses later in chapter 7, that he has complete confidence in them. And then now he's saying, don't you know that Jesus Christ stands in you? He's affirming, he's encouraging, he's reminding them, which gives us great instruction for the way we care for others. Do we do it by affirming them and encouraging them and reminding them of who they are? That's what Paul does, and he does it really well. He then goes on in verse 7, after he's sort of affirming them, and he says, that, it says that he prays for them. He says, we pray to God that you may not do wrong, later on, but that you may do what is right. So he's going to have three sort of prayers for them. The two are, two are specific, and one's kind of a summary. And the first is just that they would not do wrong or do no evil. And the second is that they would do what is right, what is good. It's very simple. Perhaps maybe sometimes we can make it a little more difficult than it needs to be how to pray for others. He gives very specific things. Do not do wrong and do what is right. That's his prayer and his hope for them. It feels like a corporate email exchange among men. It's like, do no wrong, do what is right. Best. Cheers. <laughs> it's just like, it's so to the point. <laughs> and it, it's, so, it, it's so specific and to the point. But we see that he prays for them. That's, he loves them in his absence. I'm still thinking about you. I'm still desiring for you. This is what I'm praying for you. This is what I would hope for you. And then the last one we get in the back half of verse 9. Your restoration is what we pray for. And that word restoration can also be their, their perfection is what he's praying for, and their growth. And it's the only time that this Greek word appears as a noun in the New Testament. But it does appear in a verb form. In Matthew 4, we get that. When Jesus is walking and he comes upon James and John, who are in a boat with their father, and it says they're mending nets. And that's where we get that verb. It's the idea of nets being mended, of being those that are broken, of being repaired, of being restored to the purpose they were intended for. So he's praying that they would be mended, that their nets would be mended. Doesn't it feel kind of like, if you've been joining us, a summary statement of 2 Corinthians? Hey, mend your nets. You're in disunity, disarray. Like your living is not reflective of the gospel that's in you. Mend your nets. That's what he's praying for for them. He's praying with a hopeful expectancy that they'd be mended and they would be the true form of what God made them to be of what Christ in them looks like. And then in verse 10, he's going to kind of bring the hammer. I don't know if you caught that, but he tells them the reason he's writing these things while he's away is that when he comes, he may not have to be severe in the use of authority that the Lord has given him for building up, not for tearing down. He's saying, I don't want to have to discipline you, but I've got the power to do it. I don't want to, but I will. I will bring the hammer because I'm coming (laughs) and I'll be there soon. There's a meekness in that though. He's not lording the authority that God had given them. He's saying, hey, I'm hopeful that as you're reading this, there's power even in these words. That as you're reading this, you will desire change, that you will be restored, that your nets will be mended such that when I come back, I won't have to tear down. I'll be able to build up. He's had... If you look back, he has the right, he's earned the right to say these things. He's been present with them, like I led with in this section. That he has spent time with them in person, that he's written letters to them. 
He's got the authority to do it. He's got the authority to say something hard because he's also encouraged and affirmed and prayed and hoped for. So she's saying, with all those things in mind, this is how much I love you, that I will discipline you and I will bring the hammer if I need to. And do you have someone in your life that does that? Do you have someone in your life that encourages and affirms, that reminds you that Christ is in you, that prays for you, that walks alongside you, that hopes for your restoration, that also says, hey, it's time to grow up, Peter Pan. It's time. These things, let's fix them. That's not right. That's not evidence of Christ in you. And I said that about Lennon McGill, who's my closest friend, and how he says it's time to grow up, Peter Pan, that stings, but it's out of love. <laughs> um, our daughter, our youngest daughter, her name is Rosie. We love her so much. She's so sweet. Uh, she was born in November, and she has Down syndrome. And before then, when we went to a 12-week ultrasound for Rosie, um, we didn't know she was a girl, but that 12-week ultrasound, we were told we should not expect to meet that baby, that there were complications, there were, there were things that they had identified, they didn't know fully yet, but essentially they were saying, whether it's now or it's at birth, this baby will probably not survive. And we, my wife and I were devastated. We were so sad. It was a heaviness. It was maybe one of the hardest days of our lives. And Lana McGill called me that afternoon and said, you don't need to hear right now that everything's going to be okay. You need to hear that we're in this with you for the long haul. And then a few weeks later, when we, we went back to the doctor and they, they said, hey, things are actually looking a lot better. Your daughter has Down syndrome, which is something we had prayed for because we knew there was a lot of hope in that and how she would live and her quality of life. We were overjoyed and also overwhelmed. It was a big change. We kind of didn't know, like, were we qualified to do that? Were we qualified to, to raise her? How hard would that be? What, we don't even know. And Lena McGill called me that afternoon to say, hey, I know you have a will, and I know where all your girls are going, but that girl I want. Put me in your will for her, because I want her. Let me have her. We're in this with you for the long haul. And then even a few weeks ago, we were in a hospital in Florida, and Rosie's in the ICU, and Lena McGill called me and said, you're going to be dumb and say no, but I want you to think about this. I will buy a flight right now, and I will be there tonight if you need me there, because we're in this with you for the long haul. So, Lennon McGill can tell me it's time to grow up, Peter Pan, and he can call me out when I'm acting selfishly or sinfully. He can do that because he's done the hard work of building relationships, and he's proven, not just by saying it, but actually by living it out, that he's in it for the long haul. Paul's spent a lot of time. Paul has been in it. He's demonstrated, I'm in this with you for the long haul. So I'm going to say what's hard. I'm going to tell you exactly how this should be, and I'm going to tell you, I have the authority to do this, and I don't want to do it, but I love you, and I will. Maybe the, the application here is that you should find that person in your life that loves you enough, has been around enough to call you out when you're in sin, and when you're not living like Christ is in you. Or maybe that you have those people in your life, and you love them, and you've been around for them, but you've never made that step to courageous words that are hard, they're difficult, not easy, but are necessary, and for the upbuilding of the church. Maybe it's those. It's probably thinking my application here is join a small group and you'll find all those things. It's really not. I think you should. That's actually not. I actually say join a small group. That's the easy part. 
then do the hard part and invest in people. Do the hard part and be in it for the long haul and build relationships. The hard work, building relationships. Maybe that's the application. What if Paul ended the letter here? I mean, what if the lecturer is reading this to the church of Corinth and the last words they get are, I'm coming and hope I don't have to tear you down, but I will. I mean, that's intimidating. There's a heaviness there. But it's not. He's going to end it with a few verses of great encouragement, of great specificity. Specificity. It's a marching order for the church. Read with me verses 11 through 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now notice, he doesn't say, finally, those who are brothers in Christ. He says, finally, brothers. Sort of going back and doubling down on the point earlier. That he's not wanting them to be skeptics in this. He's saying, hey, brothers, church. And he's going to give them specific things to do. Like, this is how you should respond in light of your examination. Five things, if you saw that. Rejoice. Hey, rejoice of what Christ did in you. Be marked by rejoicing. Praise God that he sent his son to die the sinner's death on our behalf so we might be called sons and daughters of the Most High King. Rejoice together. Be marked by rejoicing. That's what I want to see in you, rejoicing. The second, he says, aim for restoration. It's that word from earlier. Mend your nets. Still saying it. Aim for that. Make your goal as a people, as a church, to be that your nets will be mended, that relationships will be righted. That you would encourage each other in your pursuit of Christ. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. That's the third one. Another way of saying it would be encourage one another. He's given them a lot of appeals in this letter. He's given them a lot of things to be thinking about. He's given them plenty of things to digest and to hope for. Now comfort and encourage each other towards doing those things and pursuing a life with Christ together. And he says, agree with one another. Set your minds on the same things. Don't think the same thing, not pursue socialism. But set your mind on the same things, essential doctrines of the faith. Set your minds on them. Be united by those things. And then live in peace in response to right thinking, in response to comforting one another, in response to rejoicing together with a peace. Be marked by peace. And by the way, if you think that personal examination of your faith doesn't matter, do you see the theological and the ethical and the social implications at the church, at the collective level, as you did the individual that theologically you'd be of one mind that you would think the same things so to think them yourself would have implications on y'all thinking them together ethically that we would live together that comforting encouraging one another to tr- towards truth and growth restoring one another mending nets together and then socially living peace that the church would be marked by looking like a unit a unified group of people Minds set on the same things, living together in peace. It has the degree, the degree to which we're doing that, the individual letter on getting those things and growing in those things, is the degree to which the church grows. And collectively, look at how beautiful it looks. 
He and says the assurance, and with all that mind, the God of love and peace will be with you, enabling you to live that out, enabling you to look different, such that the world will see rejoicing. The world will see mending and encouraging and unity and peace. And that's when the church looks beautiful. People on the outside are like, I want that. What do those people have? What makes them different? That are seeking restoration in each other? They're rejoicing together? What is it? He even says it should bubble over into greeting each other with a holy kiss, which I don't know what my application for you is there. <laughs> Take that what you will. And he says, all the saints, we're all in this with you. We greet you too. And finally, he's going to end it in verse 14 with a benediction. Incidentally, it's the only time in all of Paul's benedictions that he's going to speak to all three persons of the Trinity, both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And for Christians, those who pass the test, it's a blessing. And it's a reminder. For those who haven't, those Christ is not in them yet. It's a prayerful offer. He's praying these things for them. That you get a glimpse of the gospel story in. That in grace, the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, mounted a cross and died a sinner's death. Then love, God the Father sent his only son and with such an unfathomable love that we can't understand to mount that cross and to die that death. That then a a risen king, having defeated death, would send the Holy Spirit to seal us and to bind us in unity and fellowship both to the Father and to fellow believers. Is Jesus Christ in you? The most important question we have to answer. If it's yes, then we walk in assurance. We walk in confidence and joy and we walk with other believers as they do the same. Point them towards it as well. And if you're not, then confess your sins. Repent. And trust we have a God that is faithful to forgive them. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us as we mend our nets, as we look to the cross and the work of your Son on our behalf, a work that we couldn't accomplish but have great love he accomplished for us. I pray, God, as we dwell on our self-examination and look inward, that we would be filled with a great excitement and a great joy and an even greater reminder of our assurance that Christ is in us. Lord, I pray then that the church would look different, that we would be marked by rejoicing, we'd be marked by restoration and comfort and unity and peace. Father, help us in all these. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.